If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here we are, days into 2024, and I'm still eating leftovers. What? Is that even safe? Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. What's going on today? Uh, we're still sort of in that lull, which is a good thing. It's <laughs> None of the leaders are back yet because they're still on their vacations. At least the prime minister is, and there is word out of the prime minister's office today that uh, initially they said that he was paying his way on that Jamaican vacation, but uh, they're correcting that, and um, it turns out uh, it's a freebie from the family that he knows, from the family of the family or uh, friends of his dad's, what have you. Uh, so yeah, they're uh, they're not flipping the bill for the ninety three hundred dollars a night, and you know what? They deserve to be away just like every other family, and we certainly do enjoy the clarification from the Prime Minister's office saying that, uh, no, the family was not paying for it, uh, that, in fact, it uh, they were staying with a family friend. There you go. And interesting enough, the Green Party leader uh, came out today, Elizabeth May, and, you know, talked about 2024 and moving forward and all that. And she taught and she called on the prime minister, which I thought was interesting, three objectives, called the, him to prioritize three objectives. And that was affordability, a federal provincial collaboration, because that's what it takes for all of these things and international peace which I thought was astounding coming from the green leader. Um, but uh, anyway, we'll see what happens. She said the government needs, the federal government needs to lead again. So that's coming from the green leaders, uh, Elizabeth May. What else we got? Uh, the Epstein thing? I don't know. Uh, again, as uh, as Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, said yesterday, nothing really there that we haven't heard, although we certainly are hearing a bit more detail of it, but I'm feeling greasy just even talking about it. Uh, and the reason these are all coming out now is because these documents have been released. They weren't used in court because the victim settled out of court. So, uh, again, it, just more detail of what we uh, already know. So... Uh, let's go from there. Fo- uh, food costs are still up despite government's efforts to stabilize. That's due to Stats Canada. And, you know, this is a, uh, <laughs> we might talk about this later if we can get a vet on or the family. But there is this story, and the first thing I saw, and if you have a dog, you know what this is like. So, um, and yes, we have a dog. His name is Tucker. I know. So is every other dog. All right. So, uh, and, and it's, uh, this dog we're talking about is like a Pennsylvania family. And basically what happened was they were getting some renovations done and they needed money to pay the renovator and the renovator wanted to be paid in cash. So they go to the bank and they withdraw $4,000. So, and I believe this was in Pennsylvania and, uh, sit the money in an envelope on the counter and thinking, you know, I'll sit it there for a second. Then we'll get rid of that and hide it somewhere until we have to see the guy tomorrow, whatever. And the dog, uh, and his name, I think, is Cecil. (laughs) Cecil uh, ate the money. Cecil ate the money. Yeah, like uh, um, four grand. Down it goes. So you see those commercials. 
And you probably have got a dog, you've experienced it yourself when you walk into the room and something's all tore to hell, whether it's a pillow or, you know, even some wrapping paper or what have you. But imagine it being four grand <laughs> scattered all over the place. So um, I think they managed to piece uh, 500 of it together, but another uh, 3,500 or 25, and, oh, and I think the dog threw up a couple of it in there, but like 2,500 is still missing. <laughs> So you know what they had to do? They had to um, monitor what Cecil was doing. And if you see Cecil, he's just one of the cutest dogs you've ever seen. Uh, a golden doodle, all 100 pounds of him. They said if, the, if a smaller dog had done this, it would have, there would there'd be operations. But bigger dog, no problem. Just follow it along with uh, a Ziploc bag and get yourself some glit rubber gloves. Maybe a face mask. I don't know. And follow Cecil around. And, you know, uh, long story short, they got it all back except one tablespoon. No, they got it all back except 500 bucks. Isn't that amazing? And, you know, you look at the face of poor Cecil. It's like, okay, Cecil, you can have the 500 bucks because he's been through hell. You look at the not face only, of the poor banker who then had to deal with the money afterwards. <laughs> the bank was pretty good about it. They said, you know, as long as you can bring him some, bring us some serial numbers, then we can figure it all out. But you have to kind of clean it up and dry it. And that, you know, that's laundering well, money, they as they say. First. Yeah, really. No, they just dropped the whole thing. Just like scooping up after the dog in the backyard. All right, we've got it. You're going to have to make do with what you can. No, that wasn't. They had to go through it all. So, yeah, all back except... Uh, one tablespoon, 500 bucks. There you go. And Cecil, none the worse for wear after a good 48 hours, I'd say. All right, enough of that. More uh, coming up. Uh, nearly one in two Canadians would prefer the next election take place before 2025. According to research by Nano's Research, when it comes to their preference for timing, 46% uh, indicated they either wanted the next election to happen as soon as possible or in 2024, not October of next year. To talk more about all of this, Nick Nano's with us, Chief Data Scientist, founder of Nano's Research, and here now. Nick, thanks for the time. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, too. So what does this say, uh, Nick? It's not uh, 70%. It's, it's you know, uh, almost 50 But what does it say uh, to you as far as uh, what this indicates? Well, you know what? There's a significant proportion of Canadians. You know the Band-Aid, having a Band-Aid on? Well, half of Canadians just want to, they know that they've got to rip it off. It's like, just rip the bloody thing off. Let's have an uh, Right? So, you know, the, the one thing is that about one out of every three Canadians are saying, I'm fine with 2025. Another 17% say, I don't really care when it is. So, you know, but the thing is, is there's more appetite to have it sooner than later right now. Nick, I'm I'm 61 years old. I cannot remember ever in my lifetime the Canadian saying, "Yeah, let's have an election, woo wee, let's go." Uh, and I often hear politicians saying, "Well, Canadians never want an election." Is that accurate? What's I'd, different I'd just now? I like to say you're starting to sound like we're part of a support group of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what's happened, Nick. Three years of a of a global pandemic, and now hell with affordability. That's yeah. where we are. You know, the thing is, is that. Um, in my experience, when we get towards when parties have been in power for a long time, the appetite for election increases. It's kind of like, you know what, the, the, the liberals were elected in 2015 and 2015, 16, 17 people, you know, they'd only been in power for a few years. You know, after they've been in power, you know, now for eight years and counting, um, 
the proportion of Canadians who are okay with an election start to increase because they know that there's probably going to be a change in government. So I think uh, I think most of the time, people go, why do I need to have an election? It's a waste of time and money, uh, or it's not going to change anything. In this particular case, there's a significant proportion of Canadians that think that if there was an election, it would change something, and the Liberals have been in power for quite a long time. Are Canadians putting together these two points, the fact that during the height of the global pandemic, the prime minister called an election that nobody wanted in order to get a majority uh, and ended up with less. Now he won't call one when people want him to call one. Is that resonating with Canadians? I don't think so. You know, the thing is, is that, you know, one of the other things that Canadians like is is certainty. So, you know, setting this 2025 date sets a certain level of certainty that they won't have to deal with this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, but the thing is, think of it this way. Canadians are struggling to pay for the rent or the mortgage. They're worried about what, what their mortgage payment is going to be if they're renewing their mortgage because of high interest rates. They're struggling to pay for groceries. And I think a lot of Canadians have the view that they have nothing to lose. Things are so bad financially, they have nothing to lose. And that maybe if there's a change in government or the Liberals get shook it, shaken up a little bit, that perhaps there'll be action to help Canadians in their day-to-day lives just trying to pay the bills. Uh, do Canadians or will Canadians look at this election? Um, it's less about the other person. It's more about getting rid of the incumbent. Yeah, I think it's a referendum on Trudeau and the liberals. And, uh, and, you know, the thing is, you know, in these types of situations, if you're the, if you're the opposition leader in this particular case, Pierre Poilier, that's all you have to do is basically not mess up. Right. You got to go, Hey, we're not as, which is a big challenge, which is a big challenge for the conservatives, Nick. (laughs) Are you talking about kind of, uh, is this another therapy group where we talk about elections that <laughs> yes. parties with yeah. massive advantages? If we remember, you know, when John Tory and Tim Hudak were leaders, you know, they, they had a yep. significant advantage and then people ended up voting for the McGinty and the win, gov- win uh, kind of governments and kept them in power, right? That, that was a complete... Absolutely. Routine, right? So that's, that's not outside the realm of possibility here. You know, it's, it's not, it's, it's possible that... You know, if Pierre Poilievre or someone around Pierre Poilievre makes a significant mistake, that people will go, I can't, I was not intending on voting liberal. I can't believe that I'm voting liberal, but, you know, the conservative option is, is risky. That's what the liberals have to hope for, and that's what the conservatives have to worry about. All right, Jugmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, uh, all the uh, all of the leaders doing their end-of-year things with media and such. And Jugmeet Singh was on the show, I think, two or three days before Christmas. Didn't say anything about this, but then said if uh, to one of the media outlets, after uh, the, the next election or when there's the next election, he will not support uh, the Liberals in the same type of deal that he has now. Why is that coming out now? Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I think he's worried about, uh, you know, liberal and NDP fortunes being connected. You know, like the thing is, is that for the New Democrats, they're in a tough spot because, you know, if they stick with the liberals for too long and too close to when the election is going to happen, they might just be caught up in the same kind of change movement where people just decide to reject the New Democrats. You have to realize that there are other options, such as the Green Party in most parts of the country, the Bloc Québécois in, uh, in Quebec, that uh, that you know that that people could go to as opposed to uh, the the new Democrats. So I think uh, Jagmeet Singh has to think about how long he's going to prop this government up because he can't be doing it till the day before the election. Because if he does, he's just going to get crushed.
Uh, and I've asked many pundits, uh, academics, why not now? Why not just pull the plug now? And maybe he's getting ready to do that. Who knows? Uh, and many have said, well, they don't have the support right now. In many cases, it's lower than Trudeau's, or they don't have the money. Will they have all of that in 2025? Well, I think there's another reason why the New Democrats should not be pulling the plug. I think it's because they should try to get one more thing out of the government. Right, they got the dental. Right. They got right. the dental plan. Now they're talking about pharmacare. I think uh, you know if he, you know, after all these years, at least since the last election, to say yes, I've been supporting the liberals, you know, since the last election, and I got one thing, you know, and then it'd be kind of like a pin dropping kind of deal, right? Because mm. like, that's it. So I think he, I think uh, for Jugmeet Singh, he needs to get a sec, have a second win other than the dental plan. Might be pharmacare or something, but he needs that. So he said, you know what, might not have been perfect, but because of the New Democrats putting pressure on the Liberals, we managed to deliver two significant initiatives to help Canadians on the health care file. So I think, I think that's probably more of a factor than those other things. Nick Nano's with us, chief data scientist, founder of Nano's Research. Canadians would rather go to the polls for a federal election sooner than later. Nick, as always, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for taking the year to talk to us. Hopefully we can do that again this year. Much appreciated. Absolutely. Take it easy. Bye-bye. We certainly heard about the fire at Woodlands Park. Fire Chief Dave Cunliffe is joining us now to talk about that and general winter safety that we should uh, all adhere to. Uh, with us now, Dave Cunliffe, Chief Hamilton Fire Department, and here now. Chief, thanks for the time. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Scott. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So, Dave, first, give us a bit of an update. Woodlands Park, what happened? Uh, we know you got called there late in the afternoon the other day. Take it from there. Yes, Scott. It was uh, actually around about 4.45 uh, in the afternoon. We got a call for a fire in Woodland Park. Um, the original call said it was uh, in an area that uh, uh, had been an encampment uh, area. And when we got there, uh, we had a fire that uh, appeared to have started on the exterior of the building in combustibles that were underneath the overhang. And the fire had uh, worked its way up into the eaves and into the roof area. So first arriving crews uh, were met with a heavy fire load coming out of the roof of the building as well up against the building. Uh, very quickly uh, requested additional resources to the scene. And um, they went into um, search and rescue because uh, uh, obviously the building was open at that time. And uh, they located... Uh, a couple of individuals who were in the washroom area, and they just assisted them uh, under their own uh, uh, power to get out of the uh, of the building, and then uh, went about um, starting to uh, knock down and do some firefighting activities. And as the fire grew and it went across the whole length of the roof, um, unfortunately, the roof started to uh, collapse inwards. So we had to pull our firefighters out. And we went to what we call a defensive operation where we used uh, uh, Large hand lines uh, on the ground, as well as we had an aerial device up in the air uh, with mm. large volumes of water to get the fire out. So wow. the good news is the uh, two people that we assisted out were checked out by Hamilton paramedics, and uh, they refused any kind of treatment. And then uh, we made some phone calls and worked with our city partners, and uh, uh, the city's uh, homeless and housing support team uh, came, uh, were at the scene, and they uh, provided some assistance to the two individuals. And you said it started on the exterior. Do you know anything more about the cause? Um, because initially some may have thought, you know, a heater or something inside, uh, what have you. But how do you explain the exterior? 
So the fire, the fire uh, we believe, started on the exterior. Uh, most of what was on the exterior, uh, and I would call them combustibles, uh, right. uh, were, um, were totally uh, burned up and, and used during the fire. So from our perspective at this point, it's undetermined. We were not able to, to determine a single source of what that may have been in terms of that cause. Uh, when, and I know obviously you're the fire chief, uh, Dave, you're not the, you're not a politician here, but with encampments in the winter, what is your, from a fire department's point of view, what's your, what are your concerns? Well, you know what? Uh, it's, 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 uh, a really good question. And so uh, let me answer it from a different direction, Scott, because I think it's important. So one of the things that we've recognized, we started to see in, um, in November and December, an increase in uh, response calls to uh, areas where there are encampments. Uh, in fact, uh, we had 18 in November and we had 25 in December. So of the total uh, 43 calls, uh, there was a number, 23 of them. So over half were for open air burning complaints. So we knew uh, folks were uh, having fires and were, um, were cooking and doing different things. And so we responded and we would make them aware that there is a bylaw in the city that uh, open air burning is not uh, is not uh, allowed in the uh, in the urban areas of the city and uh, once if they were cooking then once they were were uh, finished doing that the fire had to be um, put out or if it was just a fire that was burning uh, like a campfire we actually put them out we also had uh, a couple of medical calls we went to and then a number of uh, we had 18 of, of those 43 calls where we actually were responding to uh, combustibles being on fire uh, in the area. So obviously that trend uh, is concerning uh, as we're moving into uh, winter months and colder months. And so we, uh, we as the fire department uh, worked on a project in conjunction with not only other city divisions, but uh, we're also working in with the help of uh, other community outreach uh, teams. And we've developed uh, fire safety messaging um, and fire safety tips uh, specifically for the encampment areas. And uh, so one of the things that we're concerned about is obviously the the close proximity of tents and shelters uh, to each other, um, because we, mm. we strongly are st- suggesting that there needs to be uh, a, a distance in between at least. And, and we've put it in, in, in terms, Scott, that uh, hopefully folks will, will recognize and understand. So we basically are telling them, um, keep your tents and shelters at least three big steps away from each other, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, we got some separation if something was happened. Um, right. Make sure that they keep uh, the areas outside of the of the tents and shelters clear. So if they have to get out, they quickly can. Um, remove uh, all the garbage and clutter away from the tents. Right, get get that out of there because those are combustibles and those yeah. are things that could could readily burn. The other thing is we give them information uh, regarding to the warming bus that's available. So if uh, they need to keep warm, um, there's that's uh, made available through the warming bus. That's available every night from uh, 10 till 6. The other big things are don't ever, you know, sleep or don't ever smoke inside your tents or shelters. Mm. And, and let's not, while you're laying down, you know, please don't be having cigarettes and, and smoke. Um, the other thing is, is that if you are using smokers materials, have a proper ashtray or a can that you can put it out, um, that you don't just butt it out on the ground or think you butt it out into something, you know, be safe about that. 
And then the other that what's really big is is uh, you got to be cautious of the use of propane or butane or gas or other flammable items when you're around in the shelter area or the tents um, because um, we don't want those things stored in in those types of uh, uh, areas and we don't want them using it because when you use it obviously there's an open flame. So we're we're just trying to cover some things off um, to. help, you know, to remind folks uh, of the things that can help keep them safe. And uh, we're, you know, this information is being disseminated out there uh, with the assistance of not only the homeless and housing support team of the city, but also the community outreach teams um, across the city as well. That is uh, great, Dave, and kudos to you and the Hamilton Fire Department for being so proactive and 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 going beyond the call of duty to to set out these uh, these great safety tips. What is the reaction when you spread this information? Well, um, I, people are, are very welcoming of it. I think I think they realize that you know people people care and people want to make sure that they're safe. I mean. Um, and it's it's important because you know let, let's face it, uh, um, you know, fire safety uh, from our perspective certainly is extremely important no matter where you live, and mm-hmm. um, it's 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 very similar. And unfortunately, when we've seen it across the province and and across Canada, uh, where there have been some very tragic incidents uh, in encampment areas where people have been seriously injured or you know, unfortunately killed. And we certainly want to do whatever we can to try and uh, reduce that potential here in the city. Dave Cunliffe with us, Chief Hamilton Fire Department, uh, working with the city and various organizations to keep those in encampment safe and the rest as well. Uh, Dave, as always, uh, kudos to uh, the fire department for doing this and going above and beyond the call. And uh, stay safe. Happy New Year to you. Thanks so much, Scott. We really appreciate it. Hamilton, incredibly, incredibly proud of its Lancaster, and uh, you often hear it uh, buzzing around, uh, especially in the summertime on the weekends. Hamilton's Lancaster and other warbirds will be taken to the road or air this spring and summer in a cross-Canada tour celebrating the Royal Canadian Air Force 100th anniversary. Uh, the Warplane Heritage Aircraft will be appearing at several air shows coast-to-coast, including... Canada, uh, Canada Day celebrations on Parliament Hill. Dave Rohr is with us, President and CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum, and here now. Dave, thanks for the time. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Scott. Good to be with you. Boy, this sounds like it's going to be quite the celebration. Oh, it is. You know, we're really excited uh, here at Canada's Flying Museum, right here in the Hammer. Uh, we haven't been on the road uh, for a number of years. Uh, the last big trip, of course, was 2014 when we took the Lancaster over to England. I remember that. And that was a that was a big year for sure, 2014. So 10 years later, uh, we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force. We're going to do a western swing with the Lancaster. We're also going to go as far east as Greenwood with some of the other airplanes, our D-Day C-47, our PBY Catalina, and our TBM Avenger. But we're going to, and we're going to be at Trenton uh, at Eight Wing for 29 and 30 June, and then over Parliament Hill with probably another 70 aircraft, including all the assets of the current Royal Canadian Air Force. So we're really looking forward to it. It's about an 80-hour venture for five of our airplanes this summer, and uh, we're we're just excited to, you know, to recognize the 100th anniversary of an organization that started on uh, 1st of April. 
1924. And you know, when the RCF started uh, in 1924, it had 68 officers and 307 airmen. <laughs> so uh, wow. by the end of World War II, there was 332 men and 17,000 women who served in, in 86 squadrons in the Royal Canadian Air Force. So uh, we represent that history proudly, and we're going to recognize it with flying with some modern assets of the Royal Canadian Air Force with some of the historic assets that we own. Uh, many think of, you know, a plane ride, you pack your bag, off you go. Uh, I remember talking to you about flying over to the UK and logistically, not only, you know, the crew and whatever you have to, whatever you have to do to arrange something like that, but you're also flying in a vintage aircraft. So you've got to have your parts and pieces and a yeah. crew and service for this thing as well. So uh, this looks like a, mar- a much grander scale. So tell us a little bit about the pit crew and how you keep this thing going. Well, that's, you know, that's very true. Uh, you know, our organization, our museum is really truly successful because we have a very talented and, and, you know, a nucleus of staff members, but we're supported by our volunteers, many of whom are pilots or, or engine aircraft uh, maintainers. And uh, they bring their talents and skills from careers in various uh, you know, aviation uh, backgrounds or machinists or master electricians. And, and what we will do is we'll take a team uh, for each airplane. And we're looking at who that'll be. And, of course, everybody understands that no matter what your title is, no matter what your job is, if we have to do something, everybody pitches in and works together. And that's what makes it all work, especially when you're flying airplanes that, in this case, will be, in one case, 81 years old, and in another case, 79 years old. And so right now, over the winter, they're getting all the TLC that they're going to require to be ready to go when uh, when we start uh, out of the gate. And and we'll start basically in mid-June. And uh, the airplanes will be ready to go, maintained at the highest level, and uh, it'll be a lot of fun to tour the country and, uh, and you know, and, and represent the Royal Canadian Air Force history, as well as salute the, those all serving in the Air Force today, and uh, and represent Hamilton and the proud home of the Royal Canadian, you know, the Royal Canadian yeah. Air Force Heritage in our museum. Uh, so again, I remember you you taking the the Lancaster over, and and just let's use that plane as an example. How many does it take? Uh, you know, obviously this these are short uh, shorter journeys, but this is still a tour. It's still a lot oh, on this plane. It's yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's not like you're just taking it up every so often and such. So, uh, for example, with the Lancaster, a crew of how many to keep it going? Well, we have a we we'll have eight people on board the Lank when we depart. We'll leave on the sixteenth uh, of July, and we won't be back in Hamilton until about the seventh of August. And we'll yeah. go. Uh, we'll make stops in Winnipeg, Coal Lake, Alberta, Calgary, Brandon, Manitoba, and Portage La Prairie, Manitoba, on the on that particular swing. And we'll have a crew uh, of a flight crew of four and a support crew of eight that'll be on the airplane. We'll augment with people in those situations, uh, whether it be marketing or whether it be retail or whether it be uh, additional maintenance engineers as required. And they can get out to these locations, if not on our airplane, via airlines. And so we're looking at all that now. Uh, actually, it's quite interesting in comparison to the seven-week tour to the UK, where we this Lancaster is the last Lancaster to fly the North Atlantic. It was actually much more involved than this trip uh, mm. because we're staying right in Canada. So we've all heard the sound of when Vera flies over. What does that sound like inside the plane? Oh, well, you know, it's 
it, it's breathtaking. Uh, I remember the first time when I checked out on the airplane, the first time I put the throttles up to take off power. And I couldn't believe the sound, and I couldn't believe the power, <laughs> and it was just breathtaking. And my wife, when I checked out on the airplane, and I came back, and that was a number of years ago now, but she said, how do you feel? And I said, well, I feel like I just joined a club more exclusive than a shuttle pilot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and wow. it was, I mean, it's, it's such an honor to fly the airplane and, and what that airplane <laughs> represents. And, uh, you know, because 125,000 served in Bomber Command during World War II, and uh, 55,573 didn't come home, and 10,695 were young Canadians. And so we, we can't forget that sacrifice, that duty, that service, and that sacrifice. And when we fly that airplane, we have to fly it in honor of uh, those who gave their lives and served uh, in the cause of freedom. You know, Dave, every time we chat at some point during the conversation, I feel goosebumps and did again. Uh, Dave Rohr, president and CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. They're taking off for the RCAF's 100th anniversary on a Canadian tour. Good luck, Dave. Happy flights. Thank you very much, Scott. And we're going to represent the hammer with pride. You will for sure. Uh, and Hamilton is very proud of what the uh, Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum has done. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Around the Bay Road Race has some changes this year, but you know, when you've been around since uh, 1894, is that what it is? Is it? Yeah, it's 1894. Well, you know what? You're going to see some changes. You're going to see some additions, some hiccups, some uh, some challenges to keep this thing going. And that's exactly what Anna Lewis is doing, director of the Around the Bay Road Race 2024 edition. She is here now. Anna, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. So I guess, you know, typically you can't be running a race, you know, for eight, since 1894 and not have some changes or challenges along the way. You are absolutely correct. Um, there's several uh, challenges this year for sure, but we're excited because it is our 130th anniversary and um, we have some great people involved, all our, all our volunteers and stakeholders and, and city partners. So uh, we're, we're very excited about it. All right. First, let's start with the logistics, when it is, all that stuff. On Sunday, March the 24th. And we will be finishing inside Tim Horton's field for the first time. This is kind of cool because I, I always thought it was great coming in and out of First Ontario or COPS or whatever what you want to call it. Uh, that was always a really neat aspect. But this is pretty cool, too. Talk about this. I hope it will be. And I think we, we want to make it that special. Um, you know, that was a rock star kind of finish inside First Ontario Centre. And we want to present that same experience to our participants again this year. Um, and I think we will. Um, it's a great venue. Uh, certainly, it just hosted the Grey Cup. Um, so we, we all know that it's capable of having that energy and that um, that that rock star feeling. So I, I hope we can uh, bring that out again. All right, so talk about some of the challenges this year and, and obstacles that you've had to uh, to cross. It's almost more like a hurdle than a road race when you think about it. Yeah, you're right there. Um, so with the change in the finish, um, we had to look at the route. And because of where Tim Horton's field is, uh, we had to look at uh, different ways to get there. Um, so there's a lot of trains in that area. Uh, so we had to make sure that we used um, 
a road that wouldn't uh, be impacted by train traffic. Uh, so that means we have to go up Birch to Burlington Street, which adds a bit of um, extra distance. And so this year, the Around the Bay is actually 34K, uh, or in and around 34K. So it's a bit longer than people are used to, but we gave right. lots of warning. Uh, we had uh, released the, the the distance before we opened online registration. So hopefully everyone who registered had their eyes wide open when they did so. And how much longer is it actually? Well, four kilometers can mean a, a bit Ooh, different to yeah. everybody, right? Yeah, so, um, yeah. you know, the average runner, probably about 25 minutes or so, 20 to 25 minutes. Um, but... Hopefully people were training and many people have used the around the Bay road race to train for a marathon, which is absolutely. Yeah. So um, they can incorporate this in in, in their training. We also uh, released a training plan that uh, made that adjustment um, for training. So we're hopeful, um, but you can still compare your results to past years because we'll have a 30 K timing mat um, at that mark. So people can always compare their past results to this year. Um, so there'll be two kind of results that are listed, your 30K um, and then also your finish, which is at the 34K mark. What's been the response to these changes, Anna? Because, you know, because at the end of the day, um, I would think that runners would say, OK, yeah, no problem. We can do that. This is a challenge. Let's work towards this. You're right, because uh, we opened online registration in the middle of October and we were sold out in the 30K. I put that in quotes because it's really 34 uh, yeah. in, in a month. We, we sold out before the before December. So uh, that's about 5,000 people um, for the, the our signature event. And uh, we're almost sold out of the 15K. Um, we are capping it at 1,500. And then, but the 10K and the 5K are still wide open. Lots of space in, in those two categories. Much challenge for the new route. Uh, obviously, you said you got to make some other plans and such, but it's bringing it to a different part of the city. Does that change it in any way? I, I think so, and I actually hope uh, for the for you know the positive. I, I I know that the Hamilton community has been so supportive throughout the route, and we want to now um, embrace uh, the community around Tim Hortons Field. Um, I think there's mm-hmm. a great. Um, a great community base already, but I think we can engage um, another another section of the of the city. And as you said, uh, the people around the route are half the story here. I mean, because that's the great thing. If you've ever you know walked, run, whatever you do around this, uh, the people along the way are a big part of this. They're a huge part of it. Um, I, I think one of the biggest or the most frequent feedback that we receive is how the community has come out and supported all the runners um, from the Grim Reaper to the West Plains Church Choir to yeah. Stan at the cemetery um, to Tin Pan Alley where residents come out with their pots and pans. Um, it, it's just been a great uh, all-round community-supported uh, event. All right, Anna Lewis with us, director of the Around the Bay Road Race. Some changes this year, a little bit different route, a little longer, a little harder train. But, hey, the uh, the reward will be that much greater. Sunday, March 24th, the 130th edition of Anna Lewis. Thanks for the time. Good luck with this year's edition. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, you've uh, no doubt heard the, uh, the the frenzy around the uh, the Epstein documents and 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 the 
fallout from them. Um, I'm not even going to say anything more about it. I'll let Brian J. Karam explain it all. Journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy and political analyst for CNN. Brian, thanks for the time. I don't know. I just all of a sudden feel greasy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so does Uh, everybody who ever visited Epstein Island. Yeah. So anyway, um, first of all, is there anything new here or just more details of what we already know? That's my perception. Is that accurate? Yeah, there's there's nothing new here so far. I mean, 900 pages, nearly 200 people. Some of the uh, names have been redacted again because of the sensitive nature of the accusations and the age of the accusers. So some of those names weren't released. But most of what you've seen, you know, there's no big shock, no big, you know, Donald Trump traveled seven times on on, you know, uh, Epstein's plane. Bill Clinton was mentioned. All these people we already knew were mentioned. There's nothing new. Everyone is. There's no real evidence that any of the people named were involved in anything nefarious. Draw what conclusions you will out of that. But uh, most of it is just uh, just actually it's like a rerun and a bad one at that. Why was this kept under wraps? Why the reasoning to, first of all, go get it and in the interest in it? Why was this put under wraps? Well, the parties involved had requested it, and uh, so it was it was sealed. Uh, then there were those who asked for it to be unsealed. The court decided that, yeah, okay, fine. Most of it came out in other um, litigation. Yeah. So that's there wasn't anything really other than the ones that have been the underage accusers that need to be protected anymore. So uh, the court wisely decided that, hey, the information is already out there. Have at it Uh, with with the uh, exclusion of those who were underage and accused Epstein of uh, nefarious activities. Uh, And this because a settlement was reached with the victim. Therefore, the judge said, "Okay, no reason to go on. Is that accurate? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's pretty much as it is. And now we get to talk about, you know, the the lifestyle of Epstein again. (laughs) Yeah, the weirdness of it all. All right. Politically, does this carry any weight? Because it seems like both parties uh, are guilty through association here. No, this is a sideshow that uh, antics that's taking away from the real uh, uh, events that are taking place. You know, January 6th, the third anniversary of that is uh, coming up. Uh, yeah. President Biden was going to kick off his campaign on January 6th. He's pushed it back a day to January 5th, still framing it around January 6th. He says it's because of the weather in Philadelphia is expected to be bad. So he's going to go to Valley Forge, I believe, and uh, and on January 5th, tomorrow, kick off his campaign. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is out campaigning on uh, and referring to January 6th as and the republic and the democrats fighting back against the insurrection as the real injustice in the united states so uh, i i can't believe that in this day and age we have competing narratives about an insurrection but we do um watching any nfl football any of us know uh the ads are in full force they're they're coming at you uh, are we yeah. going to see donald trump debate anybody i guess DeSantis is starting to push that button well uh, <laughs> He can't debate himself, much less anybody else. Mm. I mean, he can stand in front of the mayor and argue with himself, and that's about as far as he's going to go. Donald Trump will avoid any kind of uh, of that type of activity because Donald Trump doesn't want to be uh, held accountable. So he's going to put all of his eggs in the basket of advertising speeches and meeting with the people who support him. He's never going to be questioned uh, prior to the election, and he feels he doesn't have to be. 
So do you think we will ever see Donald Trump in a debate? I mean, will that happen after perhaps he wins the Republican nomination? He'll have to. No, I don't think you'll ever see. I, first of all, I still don't think Donald Trump will be on the yeah. ballot come next yeah. November. But even if he is the Republican nominee, there is no way that that man's going to stand up and debate Joe Biden. He'll be eviscerated. He he has no facts by which to guide him. And it's going to be it would be pretty ugly. Can you get away with uh, running for president and not having a debate? Well, I guess we're going to find out. You know, there used to be a time when it, the debates weren't uh, required or or yeah. expected or done. I don't remember those times. But nonetheless, <laughs> I've been told by Donald Trump's people that we don't need to debate. We're fine as we are. So we're going to we'll we'll see. I personally think that Donald Trump is headed for I by this time, six months from now, I think the question is going to be. Uh, what color jail togs will Donald Trump be wearing? Orange or is purple the new orange? I don't know. Or green. All right, Brian, Brian we've heard you say that a bazillion times. And yes. over the years and such, you don't think he will ever make it to an election that his legal uh, woes will get in the way of that and prevent this from happening. We're starting to see states uh, reject the ballot and such. Is that what is going to happen? Is that how you see this playing out? Well, there's a lot of scenarios. There's a lot of plates in motion, the the plate tectonics in this election. I mean, first of all, the actuarial tables could claim either one of the two uh, front runners for for <laughs> you know president. That's that's just the way it is. They're both you know they they rail about Biden's age, but you know Donald Trump yeah. is in far worse physical shape, and he's only three years younger. So there, that could happen. He could be in prison. That could happen. He could be barred from running in several states. That has happened and may happen in others. The Supreme Court's going to have to step in. Nikki Haley could do well in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina, and suddenly there's a viable alternative to Donald Trump that's equally as odorous. But uh, all of these things are still in, in, in you know in play. So I I don't think anybody's a shoe in at this point in time. I you, six months from now we'll know. Uh, you talked about a viable alternative uh, pretty much to this point. Donald Trump's been walking away with this sort of thing without participating really at all, all while raising lots of money. Do you think that there is a chance there would be another Republican candidate that uh, yeah. that runs? Yeah, I do. And and look, Donald Trump says he's walking away with it. But I remind everyone, not one ballot has been cast yet. And so I don't know what he's he, he he's walking away to the tune of, you know, millions of dollars being donated to him. But as far as winning the ballot and, and winning the vote, look, he, he lost last time. It, it wasn't even close. I, I mean, in the Electoral College, there's about forty five thousand votes nationwide that made the difference. That was close. But I don't see uh, with all that's gone on that he's increased his appeal. There are people who are increasing that are his that have always will be his that are more outrageous and more outlandish and more outspoken. But I don't think he I mean, he came out and said he was happy that uh, abortion was made illegal in the United States. Well, he just angered 70 percent of the people in the country with that one. I don't see his appeal growing. Uh, Liz Cheney, is she a factor in any of this? She could be uh, right now. It. And, and, you know, that's the one, you, you, that's a great name you mentioned, because honestly, that's the one that would cause trepidation in the Democrats if she were somehow to get the nomination for the Republican Party, which is, you couldn't happen right now. But if that lane opened up, if suddenly she was able to convince people that she's real heir apparent to 
the um, causes that Donald Trump trumpeted, then uh, the Democrats would have a real hard problem. And you look at the hard numbers and Biden would have a real hard time beating Liz Cheney. And he might have a hard time beating Nikki Haley, but um, neither one of them are on, you know, have have secured anything yet. So the Democrats are watching it and eyeing it. And I always remind everyone that Democrats can always snatch defeat out of the wings of victory. So Brian J. Karam with us, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy, political analyst for CNN. Always entertaining, always fun and informative. Brian, happy new year to you. Thanks for the time. Yeah, Scott, happy new year to you, too, man. Hang in there. We're trying. We certainly know what we have lived through in a global pandemic and shutdowns and lockdowns and what have you. And we remember during the course of all of this, the SIBA loan was created to help small businesses get through this period while everybody was locked up. Now those bills have come due. Interesting, we've done a couple of features in the last week or so uh, in regard, and before Christmas, uh, in regard to businesses that have just gone under, can't continue on as this uh, comes to an end. To talk more about the challenges moving forward, Christina Santini with us, Director of National Affairs for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and here now. Christina, thanks for the time. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Scott. Thanks for having us online. So, Christina, are you, uh, first of all, how many people, uh, businesses across the country have have taken advantage of this? And, and what's the rate of payback? Do we know? Uh, so we know that about 900,000 small businesses, as well as non-for-profits, took advantage of the SIBA loan. And amongst our own membership, we know that about a third of them, so 30%, have paid it back. Uh, We know a third of them are trying to get the finances that they need to pay it back, although it's not guaranteed that they all will. And the other third sort of wondering, hmm, I don't think I'll be able to pay this back and I'll likely have to have to either close my doors or revisit my operations or think um, have to pay uh, the full amount, lose out on the forgivable portion and pay interest on the full amount until 2026. Yeah, you know, even that option, if you uh, pay off a certain amount that you get forgiven, even not making that deadline would hurt. Exactly. That's the the key thing that we've been asking about, asking government for, is to extend the deadline that enables businesses to retain the forgivable portion. Because when they provided the SIBA loan, the big carrot, or what was enticing, and many business owners said, okay, maybe I'll keep my doors open, even though I'm not bringing any new revenues in, and uh, I'm getting tons of costs, uh, and I have to accommodate different public health measures. Um, the carrot was the forgivable portion, that if they took out the $40,000 loan, 10000 would be forgivable, or if they took out the $60,000 loan, 20000 would, would be forgivable. However, it's only forgivable if they pay it back by January 18th. And coming out of the pandemic, which lasted a lot longer than we all thought, um, it, the economic context was very different. You know, consumer demand has softened softened tremendously. Inflation and costs are rising on all ends. So it's not the same environment for them to be able to pay it back with ease. Was it a good idea in the Canadian Federation of Independent Business to do this? What could have been done differently? What have we learned here? Um, I think there are many things that we learned. I think one one thing we can appreciate is how 
the government was flexible in adjusting the different eligibility criteria when it was first found out that many businesses uh, just wouldn't be able to meet the requirements as they were uh, set up. Um, that being said, I think more flexibility built into the design around repayment in the future to take into consideration, um, you know, the fact that economic outlooks might not play out as we all anticipate uh, yeah. would be great. Because as I referenced, when the loans were first designed and those contracts were first put out, everyone thought COVID was going to last a short little while. And it, mm. we weren't out of it until some of the latest restrictions, October 2022. If for example, travelers, restrictions were on in place until October 2022. And as you mentioned, you know, when it first uh, we first were allowed out, everybody thought it was going to be like the Roaring Twenties and woohoo, happy days here again. Little or no, did we end up with an affordability issue? Um, uh, what's the challenge for businesses? What happens if they don't make the payments? So, if they don't make the January eighteenth deadline or haven't applied for refinancing, then they completely lose the forgivable portion I mentioned, and then they have to start paying interest on the full amount. So if they yeah. were hoping to only have to pay back 40000 they now have to pay back 60000 with 5% interest. So what businesses have to do right now is figure out, okay, do I lose out on the forgivable portion, pay the full amount back with 5% interest, or do I refinance and maybe get an interest rate of between 10 to 15%, if not higher? Um, where am I better off? Am I going to be able to pay it back? That's where, it, that's where they're at. And we're certainly seeing ads uh, or hearing of ads where, you know, hey, if you've got a CBA loan coming due, you know, they'll offer the bridge and such. Is that, an, is that a way out or is that just adding to it? Is that a benefit? Um, so uh, I'm going to ask you to repeat the question. Sorry. You know, we're certainly hearing of services that are offering businesses to bridge that gap, to bridge the loan, and, you know, we'll help you get through this. Is that a viable option, or is that just delaying the inevitable and paying more? Okay. Uh, I'm just, I would suggest, and I think the CFIB would suggest to really look at the terms and conditions of those offers very closely. Yeah. Some of them can be very attractive, um, but the devil's is always in the details. So we actually put up on our website different uh, help sheets and resources uh, trying to encourage or, or guide um, business owners to uh, watch out for certain details that might be included in those type of agreements and to really think through what's best for them. So it could be a good deal. It could be something that um, right. they're, they're, there's devils there. And so caution should be exercised. Right, absolutely. Devil in the details. Uh, is this a done deal? Do you see any changes or any relief from the government? Is this done over? That's it. Move on. Uh, the message we're getting is it's going to that that's a done deal. There's not going to be further relief on that end, and that the January 18th deadline is where they're sitting. So that's what was being communicated to us right now, and so we're encouraging our members to really look at the refinancing options. Christina Santini with us, Director of National Affairs for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, now trying to cope with paying back SEBA loans. Christina, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Be well, Scott. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. War continues 
on the Gaza Strip, uh, uh, Hamas against Israel and Israel against Hamas, the place being literally obliterated as Israel tries to track down uh, any sort of sign of Hamas. Uh, many questioning what happens once this is all over and the dust settles. What happens to the people? Canada talking about taking a thousand Palestinians in. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Uh, Dr. Jack Cunningham, PhD program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School, University of Toronto, and here now. Jack, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are too, and Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you, too, Jack. Much appreciated. Um, how, uh, I don't even know where to start here. What happens to the Gaza Strip after this is over, after the dust settles? In a word, nobody, know, well, in two words, nobody knows. Uh, nobody has yet come forward with an explicit, detailed, and plausible plan for restoring order to Gaza once the, uh, once the conflict is over. Uh, the, uh, the Israeli government is a somewhat rickety and unruly coalition government with a number of different views, some of them impractical and extreme, some of them not. And there have been leaks from various camps over what to do. Should the, uh, the Palestinian Authority have, have a role? Should the UN have a role? Should uh, Israel attempt to establish uh, total control over Gaza? These have all been floated, and I don't think any firm decision has yet been made. Although Prime Minister Netanyahu has insisted in public on numerous occasions that he does want uh, a, a Palestinian rather than an Israeli entity uh, ruling over Gaza after the conflict. Uh, in regard, so does that mean that there's hope for a two-state solution with that statement? Probably not a two-state solution. In the... Uh, the last interview he gave before his death, Henry Kissinger said that the preconditions for a two-state solution simply don't exist at the moment, hmm. given the uh, the intractable nature of the conflict and given the uh, the profound feelings among uh, among the various parties. Probably the most that can be done is to try to do what the Israeli philosopher Micah Goodman calls shrink the conflict, and that would mean some degree of Palestinian self-rule but an Israeli role in maintaining security, uh, given what's, uh, what happened in, in Gaza last time we had uh, Palestinian control. Should Canada and other countries take people in from Gaza? What's the controversy around this? Well, the controversy here is, is really tied in with the assumption that uh, taking in uh, Palestinian refugees would, uh, would somehow amount to complicity in uh, in involuntary uh, deportation of them from Gaza. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a bit of a leap. I don't think anybody is uh, su- suggesting in the, that it's uh, at all practical to uh, remove all the Palestinians from Gaza, but there are going to be an awful lot of refugees. One of the problems here historically is that Palestinian refugees have been treated differently from all the other refugees that were created during the population movements and border redrawings of the 20th century, they've been left in refugee camps. Uh, they have not been integrated into the surrounding Arab countries. When the, uh, when the UN set up an agency to resettle them, that was the hope. Uh, that agency, UNRWA, was supposed to be temporary. But uh, the Arab countries have uh, consistently declined to integrate any significant number of Palestinian refugees because they want to... Um, they think that would be uh, tantamount to uh, conceding uh, 
conceding the rightness of Israel's existence. And the one point on which all of the Arab countries can agree is the hostility to Israel. So um, uh, how do Palestinians move forward here? Do, how do, and I've asked you this before, I think, Jack, how do they separate themselves themselves from Hamas? I think that's probably going to have to be done with substantial involvement from the relatively moderate uh, Arab regimes like Jordan, uh, possibly Egypt, uh, possibly the, uh, the, uh, the Gulf Emirates. Some moderate force within the Arab world has to step in and take a role and, uh, and de-radicalize, help de-radicalize Gaza. That's the only possibility for uh, a cessation of hostilities that will, that will endure. So where does the Arab world stand on this, Jack? Uh, well, it's hard to say what uh, some of the leaders in the Arab countries really think because they're afraid to break ranks from the, uh, the tradition of solidarity with the Palestinian refugees and against Israel. Uh, in, in private, some of them are probably much more realistic. Uh, whether, uh, whether that will uh, uh, suffice to get them to uh, act moderately in defiance of the so-called Arab street is another question, however. Uh, how do Arabs feel about, the Arab communities feel about Hamas? Well, we've seen some survey data that indicate uh, high levels of approval of, of Hamas, and that's a problem. High levels of, uh, of Palestinians in, in, the, in the West Bank, for example, actually supported the, uh, the October 7th attack, and that's, uh, that's problematic. Uh, the, it, 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 the Palestinians have to show themselves to be a, a reliable partner for peace, if there's going to be any sustainable uh, peace, much less a two-state solution. Will any of the allies, uh, Canada or otherwise, accept uh, anyone who supports Hamas? I think, we, I think that's unlikely. I don't Dr. Think Jack Cunning? Uh, as for Canada, we are simply not much of a player in the region. Yeah. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk Schools, uh, University of Toronto. Always fascinating, Jack. Uh, We'll stay in touch. Good luck. Happy New Year. You too, Scott. Take care. We've had a lot of chatter about um, foreign interference, whether it's in elections. There's an inquiry going on now in regard to that um, uh, interference in the last two uh, federal elections. Uh, And one of the suggestions coming out of all of this, as we try to get a grip of uh, others who appear to have a grip on our country, on our democracy, a foreign agent registry. What is it? Do we need one? And is there any reason not to have one? Let's bring in Aaron Schell, Managing Director or General Counsel at the Center for International Governance and Innovation, and here now. Aaron, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, Scott. Happy to be here. Uh, what is considered a foreign agent, Aaron? And in your opinion, do we need to be uh, better get a handle on this and register? Yeah, sure. Good questions. Um, so a foreign agent is someone who's working at the behest of a foreign government for their interests. And I guess, obviously, against Canada's interests. Um, and do we need a registry? Absolutely, we do. But you know what? It's it's not the it's not the the end. Uh, if we have one, it's the beginning. And so it's one of a suite of tools that we need. 
But if you're questioning me, Scott, is do we have all the tools that we need in the tool chest to deal with the world as it is? The answer, sir, is we do not. Why do and and for those that, that don't agree with this, they'll say, well, it won't solve anything. It doesn't. But, uh, you know, but again, a spoke in the wheel, a tool in the toolbox. Why do some want it? Why do some not want it? It seems like a no brainer, especially since we're having an inquiry into foreign interference. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so, I mean, maybe the starting point is, look, this stuff is real, right? So you can't pick up a newspaper now without realizing that states are becoming more aggressive. They are meddling in Canada's affairs, right? So um, so I, my point here is we're going to want every available tool we possibly can to deal with this. But the folks that are saying we don't need one, they, they're, they're, they're arguments against that break into one of three camps. And let, we'll go through them. Um, so the first is that it won't work. And it won't work because spies aren't going to register. Like, you'd be the worst spy in the history of the world mm. if you put yourself on a public registry and told everyone you're a spy, right? And so it's not going to work if people aren't going to register. The point here is, is not that. It's just, again, like I said, it's another tool in the toolkit, like Al Capone, right? They didn't get Al Capone for murder. They got him for taxes. And so here, if right. you don't register, that in and of itself could be a charge. Right. And so it's just another tool. So while I agree, not all spies are going to register. It's just an additional thing. The second argument uh, is that it's racist and because of it, it can uh, it's aimed at certain communities. I do not find that argument convincing at all. If you don't want to register, don't work for a foreign government has mm -hmm. nothing to do with race. And in fact, I think it's probably going to be country agnostic. So it, it's it, that for me is, is a red herring. And the third, the argument that I'm most sympathetic to that I but I don't really land on is that it could create a new flabby bureaucracy that we don't need or that it's going to be expensive. And, you know, with only so much money in the jar, is this the best use of resources to combat foreign interference? My counterpoint is it doesn't need to be a big flabby bureaucracy. We can do this efficiently. And for what it's worth, Scott, the Americans have been doing this since the 1930s, so it's not beyond the realm of human comprehension to put one of these things together. Well, you could say the same thing about defense of your country. I mean, you know, uh, it, it just doesn't seem to make any sense. Why are we still debating this? It seems like this is death by delay. We, we just keep pushing it off and pushing it off, even though I think for uh, the majority of Canadians, it's a great concern. Yeah, honestly, that, that that part I don't get, especially when the political wind is all blowing in the same direction, right? So um, uh, it, it, everyone wants the same thing. And I, I think, you know, I, I know I I work for an independent, nonpartisan think tank. So when I say nonpartisan, I'm fiercely nonpartisan, right? I, I work with people in all parties, um, all shapes and sizes. And so I think in the folks that go into politics, um, every single one of them that I know wants the outcome of the election to be free and fair. Every single one of them I know wants the outcome of the election decided by Canadians. And so for me, I, I'm very much like you kind of let's get on with it. Right. We don't need more considered studies or lengthy papers like we just got to get rolling on this stuff and get it into place, because for what it's worth. Um, there's another election sometime in the next two years, but it's also not just the federal election, Scott, provincial elections and yeah. municipal elections, too. Right. Is there? Yeah, it's virtually uh, affected all levels of government. Uh, does this favor one political party over the other? We have heard that all have been dragged into this in some way. Um, but obviously, in the last two elections, uh, allegedly favoring the liberals, does it favor one party over the other? 
No, I mean I, that that I don't know. I'm not I'm not a security cleared person, so I'm just some guy. So just to take take my what I'm saying with a big grain yeah. of salt here. But the broad the broad point being is that everyone that I know that is in is in politics or or works uh, for political parties wants it to be free and fair. And all this registry is doing is just making sure there's some transparency. If you're working for a foreign government or you're trying to influence. The process in Canada on behalf of a foreign government, you need to say so. You cannot do it in a clandestine way. And if you do, hopefully you'll get caught. Will we see any major steps uh, in this direction before the next election, which obviously is October of 2025? uh, and, And can Canadians feel secure about this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly hope so. Um, I mean, the, the nice thing is, is that our, our at least at the federal level, we still have a paper backed ballot, right? So uh, we don't have to worry about uh, worry worry about that. You can't you can't hack a, a piece of paper, but. Um, I mean, certainly foreign governments are trying to influence our processes. And so this is one of a series of steps, right? We have to change the the CSIS Act. So the main agency in Canada responsible for dealing with this stuff is called CSIS, or the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. And Scott, your listeners are going to fall out of their chair when they hear this. The CSIS Act was written in 1984 and has barely been updated since. And so think about your computer that you had in 1984. Like DOS was state-of-the-art. The Commodore 64 was was like the best of the best. The world has changed, and so we need to update our laws. And so we're we're, looking at doing that now, too. Like here's a good example. CSIS cannot share information with non-federal partners. So suppose you're at a university or in a private company or uh, you know, even in a municipality or a province, and foreign adversarial states are messing around, and CSIS knows what they're doing, knows how they're doing it, um, and they cannot share that classified information because of their act. So, like, it's we got to get this stuff tuned up. Um, and so, like, the foreign agent registry is getting a lot of attention, and it's an important piece, but it's one piece of a bigger puzzle because the world is in a really rough spot right now, and adversarial states are all over this, and so we need to be strategic too. Is this fixable? Is it solvable? Because many have said, well, you're never going to stop that. There's always going to be that happening. It's been happening for years. Yeah, no, of course, man. It's like, you're, you're never going to stop everything, right? Like, so... Um, States have been trying to mess with other states since they since the Peace of Westphalia in 60, 1648, right? Like this is this is a thing that happens. All we're trying to do is make it harder for it to happen, create more barriers, create enhanced protections, and just make sure that the outcome of our elections is free and fairly determined by Canadians, right? Do you and think, I think we can do that. Do you think we'll see that before the next election? Does this take another party to change it? No, I, I mean from your lips to God's ears. I, I'm, I'm, I'm like let's let's get going at it, right? Like it's you know I, I'm, I'm very much, and we we cannot let the perfect be uh, sit in the way of the good enough. Like we just got to get going. And if there needs to be changes down the road, fine. But legislation is not a tombstone. Like let's just get the, get hmm. the acts amended. Let's get the registry in place. Let's get going, and so we can put some miles on this thing before the next election too. Aaron Schell, Managing Director, General Counsel, Center for International Governance and Innovation on a Foreign Agent Registry. Aaron, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime, Scott. Absolutely. Joining us now, Scott Radley, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, I hope you're doing well. I am. I, I'm, I'm better than Billy Joel. Can you imagine having to try and memorize that song? I mean, before yeah. we all before we all knew the tunes, so that we all learn it as we're going, because yeah. you hear it over and over. I'd, I've but then always, he wrote it. I mean, if he wrote it, he can probably remember it. Well, I know, but 
Like when you sit down to you write. You or I? No. No, but it's just, it's so many words all cra- Like there's no time for a Actually, breath Actually, I think that's an easiest song to write, easier song to write, because all you got to do is list a whole pile of words. It's not like you got to make it rhyme or. Well, you know. yesterday on the show, uh, yesterday on my show, after you had uh, already gone to bed, um, we were talking about the idea of should we really be pushing to bring back history as a subject in school again. There's a, there's yeah. a push on because right now, and I didn't realize this cause I mean, it's been a while since I've been out of school, as you well know, um, that, I mean, I didn't even know what history was required in school now. And apparently it's one credit in grade 10. That's really? the, that's the minimum. There's sounds other. like, sounds like Jim. Well, yeah, but so there's civics in some, but, but actual history, there is one and people are saying that's not good enough, but everyone's saying, yeah, but you need your science and your programming and this and that and the other. It's so stupid. But I've long said, if I was a history teacher in high school, I would make kids learn that song. And then you would every week. I would ask you, you would have to write yeah. one paper on Do one a of rap. the, on what, no, just write a paper on one of the things he says, pick all, all through the year, oh, pick man. anything you like in there and write me a paper on something. Cause there's like 150 things in there that you could do on history. Mm-hmm. But maybe pick a current artist so the kids could relate. Yeah. Have the have, fallout boy version of the song. They did an entire like redo the verses and really? all the really? history's out of order and everything. It's great. Yeah, that, really? that's good. So now you have to listen to that. Now you want to have the kids learning the you know, completely wrong history. That's even <laughs> yeah. better. That's even better. Well, here's, let me tell you something. So here's what, what we were talking on the show and the guest last night, he raised a really interesting point. I want to hear your thought on this, Scott, although I'm taking over your show. We were talking about how history now has become so difficult to teach because different interpretations yeah. have led to, you know, people have different views on this. So I said, so what happens if someone were, if you were doing something on say the lead up to 9-11 and there was just a poll that came out in the States, uh, last week, the week between Christmas and New Year's that says 25% of Gen Z people in the U.S. have a positive view on what Osama bin Laden did. So what happens if someone files, writes a paper, hands it into you as a teacher, a history teacher, and says, I think Osama bin Laden was bang on, or I think Adolf Hitler had the right idea. What do you do? Because can you, can you give them a failing grade now in school? I don't think you can fail anybody in school. Do you remember taking history in school? The best, I, I never liked history in school. I love it now. Me too. Hammerhead Me too. trivia. But I, I, you know, I'm very fascinated by it now. But the best course I ever took was a, a course called local history. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in Markham. This is at Markham High School. And, and it taught about the village and how it started. And I found that fascinating. And that really lit the fuse for me uh, because I could relate to it. But I think one of the reasons history doesn't jive with young people is because we really don't know anything or our generation and those before it don't know anything about Canadian history because a lot of it was erased. I remember, you know, why do I need to learn about the Incas? Who cares about the Incas? Yet now we're finding out that there's, you know, all this Aboriginal history and the residential schools. Uh, you know, so I think now if you taught Canadian history, people could relate to it and understand what it's all about. It, whereas it, yeah. before they skipped it in, in our generation. I agree with you. My, and he raised this. So this is again, not an original idea of mine, but it's a really interesting point. And that is... How do you compete as a teacher with the, and I'm doing air quotes as I'm talking here, the history that you learn off TikTok and social media that is completely wrong, but you've now, you know, like there's a lot of stuff that is out there 
that people talk about as if it's an absolute fact and it's mm. not remotely an absolute fact, but once it's, yeah. once you've, well, no, I saw that on TikTok. It has to be true. You're just a, yeah. you're just an old teacher. What do you know? Yeah. You know, it's, it, but I, I don't, I just can't believe that we have allowed history to, from the sounds of it, essentially just dwindle out of the curriculum, except as an afterthought. However, there's like five different maths you can take. And I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I, I, I think there's some things. Why not that we, five different histories? I think there's a thing, there's some things we could probably get rid of in school or spend less time on and find some things to get back into school. But that probably is way longer a discussion than we have time for. And the other debate is, should there be physical education in school all the way through? And I would say, yes. Like, how can you not? I mean, this is like learning, you know, we're talking about teaching the kids uh, basic economics, uh, um, uh, basic home ec, financial like, literacy, financial literacy. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even say yeah, yeah. No, no. financial literacy. I mean, that's the exact same thing as physical fitness. It's things that you will need in life, a healthier lifestyle and such. I don't understand why we're dropping that. And I'll I mean, tell you, you know, why. Scott, there's my a good kid, reason my kid, why. My kid bounces balloons in gym. It's, it's nuts. And the reason why is because for the same reason that we don't fail any kid, we're not teachers, you're not, schools are not supposed to fail. We don't yeah. want kids to feel badly about themselves. So if you have some kids who are now unlike when, you know, I don't want to say, unlike years ago when everybody was reasonably fit, reasonably-ish fit, you, you put a bunch of kids who have been sedentary because their parents have never had them go play outside or do anything yep. in class and they are out of shape and they can't do it. You're just making them feel bad about themselves, Scott. Uh, Mr. Lowe writes, excellent song to teach history. Uh, Mr. Lowe, he's a history teacher, so he agrees with you a hundred percent. There you go. Yeah. No, it's, uh, Billy Joel should have been a history teacher. Maybe he was. All right, that's it for us. Scott Radley coming up next. Have a good one, Scott. Thanks, Scott. See you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This comes via text from Carl says, hi, Scott. First, I just want to wish you and yours a happy new year. Thank you. I just wanted to pass on a book I found at Value Village several years ago. It's called Every Man. <laughs> I've already screwed it up. It's called Everything Men Know About Women. It's about 150 pages. And they're all blank. LOL. Just not you might want to know. Sincerely, Carl. Keep right except to pass. Oh.